The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning, and thank you, and thank you, Dean Swift. I want you to listen to this observation about the human condition. The only good thing for man, therefore, is to be diverted so that he will stop thinking about his circumstances. Business will keep his mind off it. Perhaps there will be some novel and enjoyable pursuit which keeps him busy, such as gambling, hunting, or some show. In short, it will be what is called distraction. In busyness, we have a narcotic to keep us from brooding and to take our mind off these things. That is why we prefer the hunt to the kill. That is why men are so fond of noise and bustle. That is why prison can be such a dreadful punishment. That is why the pleasures of solitude are considered incomprehensible. Does that sound familiar? I don't mean do you recognize those exact words, but is the condition that is described by those words something that resonates with you? I know it does with me. That could have easily been written yesterday. But as a matter of fact, it was written almost 400 years ago in the 17th century by a man named Blaise Pascal. And it goes to show us that the human nature or human nature over time remains the same. The craving for distraction that Pascal wrote about, which we hear a lot about in our age of high connectivity and which we know ourselves is not new. It has resided in the human heart for ages. Through our digital devices, we have just exacerbated an already existing problem. We haven't created a fire. We've only thrown light, lighter fluid onto one already burning. Today, I want us to look at another consuming flame that resides in our hearts as well, and likewise that we continue to fan into greater intensity. And I want us to look at what the Bible has to say about it and how to douse it. The trait I have in mind goes by a number of names with which we're probably more familiar. Names like people-pleasing or fear of rejection. But the scriptures refer to it as the fear of man. And we're going to briefly look at three things about the, the fear of man, its reality, its results, and its remedy. To illustrate its features and characteristics, I invite you to take your Bible and open it to the Gospel of Matthew and the 14th chapter of Matthew's Gospel where we will be reading the first 12 verses. But before we read it, 
it would be helpful to have a little background so that when we interact with the names here, we have an idea of whom it is that Matthew is referring to. We're going to read a familiar name, Herod, um, but this is not Herod the Great. This isn't the same Herod that we read about in the narrative of Christ's birth. Um, this is one of his sons, Herod Antipas. And he was made a, what's called a tetrarch. A tetrarch was uh, a ruler of the fourth of a region. And so he wasn't quite at the level of a king. He was a minor level ruler, uh, more like a, a governor. And the area over which he presided at this time was Galilee and a region called Perea. And he ruled in this area from 4 BC to 39 AD. Now, before Herod married the woman that, whose name we will see here, Herodias, he had married the daughter of a king by the name of Aretas from a region called Nabatea. And when he met Herodias, he divorced his first wife in order to marry her. It just so happened that Herodias was um, his half-brother's wife. And this was something that the law of Moses prohibited. We read about that in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. And as we'll see in the text, John the Baptist made it very clear, and repeatedly so, that Herod was engaged in a union that should not be, that was unlawful. So that's just to give you a little bit of background concerning the passage, which I will now read. Please follow along. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so Matthew continues to give us backstory as to what it is that Herod is talking about, why it is he believes that this wonder worker, Jesus, is in actuality John the Baptist. Verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because he held them, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went 
and told Jesus. Well, in those verses, we encounter the reality of what the scriptures call the fear of man. We're going to be focusing particularly on verse 5, in which explicitly Herod's fear is mentioned, but we're also going to see in verse 9 that there is an implicit allusion to the fact that fear was also a motivating factor in what he did. And what we see here, illustrated by Herod, are the results of the fear of man, the fear of people. Now, the fear of people can take a variety of forms. It can come in the form of what might someone do to me physically. But as I'm using it now, I'm thinking more with respect to the fear of people that is desperately concerned and dreads what might they think of me? How might they treat me? And having our actions governed by that dread. Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man lays a snare, a trap. But he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And so let's look at possible results of the fear of man. And what I want us to consider is this, that the fear of man can give rise to both the appearance of obedience as well as to overt sin. Let's look first at the appearance of obedience. And what I mean by the appearance of obedience is that the fear of man can motivate actions and behaviors that at least externally look like obedience to God, but as we will see, are not actually obedience to God. Two opposite actions sprung from a single source. First, Herod kept from killing John, though Matthew says he wanted to, but why did he not? Well, Matthew says because of his fear of the people because they regarded John as a prophet. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus also makes reference to Herod's killing of John, and he attributes it to his concern about political loyalty, that John could rabble-rouse in such a way that would upset his reign. I don't think that those two things are in conflict. I think both of them are, are true. Now, I want you to consider something. Was it good that prior to having John killed, um, that Herod didn't follow through with killing John? It's not a trick question. Was it a good thing that he didn't kill John when he didn't kill John? Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good thing. It was certainly better than killing him but it was only an outward appearance of obedience. It didn't come from Herod's heart. God didn't enter 
anywhere into the decision to refrain from killing the prophet, Herod wasn't in the least bit motivated by a desire to do what was right in the sight of God. His not killing John was the fruit of his self-centered fear that if he did have the prophet killed, he would lose the favor of the crowds and he might even suffer harm if they were to revolt. Now, let's think about ourselves. If we are honest, aren't there times when there are certain sins that we really want to do? But what restrains us from committing them is not concern about what is pleasing to God, not concern about how it is that we could grow spiritually, but rather the terror of what people might think of us if we were found out. In such cases, like Herod, we might be outwardly conforming to what it is that God commands in a strictly external manner, but our motivation in such times is self-centered and essentially godless, humanistic. But the fear of man can also give rise to a completely opposite reaction, and that is overt, obvious sin. When Salome, Herodias's daughter, asked for John's head, though the text says he was sorry, and that word there is stronger than our sense of, well, you know, sorry. No, it, it's a, a sense of grief. It's a sense of distress. And that distress itself was probably due to the fear of man because the people held John to be a prophet and he was probably sorry that he's gonna now give the order to have him killed. Herod gives the order for him to be executed because, the text says, he looked around at his guests. And he feared losing their respect if he didn't follow through with what he had foolishly promised. Now Matthew doesn't go into detail about the identities of these guests. But Mark does in his parallel account. In Mark chapter 6, verse 21, Mark tells us that they were his nobles and his military commanders. So picture this. Herod has his army, his leading men, banqueting with him. And he has just said, ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Mark also adds that he added the words up to half of my kingdom. And as he looked at these men over whom he had charge, and he thought about what it is that he had given an oath to do, even though it was purely wrong to do, he gave the order. One commentator says, like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. Can you relate? Do you see any of Herod in your heart? 
Let's think about some possible cases where the fear of man actually gives rise to overt, obvious sin. You participate in gossiping about or slandering someone because you fear that not doing so will put you on the outs of the peers whose approval you desperately crave. There are times when we don't come to the defense of someone who we know is being unfairly and unjustly treated because who knows what the social repercussions might be for us if we did. Maybe there aren't really any limits to what you'll post online as long as it gets a lot of likes, shares, retweets, or positive comments. An opportunity to talk to a friend or family member about Christ presents itself, but you shirk away from it for fear that they might think you are like those other religious fanatics. Or you don't want to risk losing their respect or their admiration. Though you might never say it, in your heart, you think, I'd rather be cool or smart or popular than Christ-like. John Flavel, a Puritan preacher and theologian who wrote much on this topic, said that when fear influences the soul, it becomes easy prey to the next temptation. He added, sinful fear will cause the best people to attempt to help themselves through sinful compromises. The fear of man is powerful, and it resides in each of us to various degrees. And though it is native to our fallen hearts, as I said earlier, our culture stokes its already powerful flames through a variety of means our ever-increasing constant connectivity being among them. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, say this about what they call call-out culture. Call-out culture requires an easy way to reach an audience that can award status to people who shame or punish alleged offenders. This is one reason social media has been so transformative. There is always an audience eager to watch people being shamed, particularly when it is so easy for spectators to join in and pile on. Life in a call-out culture requires constant vi vigilance, fear, and self-censorship. Many in the audience may feel sympathy for the person being shamed but are afraid to speak up, yielding the false impression that the audience is unanimous in its condemnation. And then they go on to describe the state of many college students in the US. And this is what they write. Students at many colleges today are walking on eggshells, afraid of saying the wrong thing, liking the wrong post, or coming to the defense of someone whom they knew to be innocent out of fear that they themselves will be called out by a mob on social media. 
And Lukianov and Haidt are both atheists. So they certainly wouldn't attribute this to the fear of man in the sense that I am. But nevertheless, I think that they properly identify a very real issue that affects not only people of your age group, but increasingly us as a society and a culture. You might be hearing all this talk about the fear of people, and, and you might be thinking to yourself, that might be true of some weak people, but that's not me. I don't care what people think about me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I couldn't care less what people think about me or how they react to me. And if that's your attitude, I just want you to consider something. Isn't it the case that that's exactly how you want people to think about you? In which case, you fear them thinking otherwise. Is it possible that you want people to have the perception of you so badly that you fear them thinking that you care? Ed Welch was a biblical counselor, and he wrote, aggressively asserting that you don't need anyone is just as much an evidence of the fear of man as more timid examples. Fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check our pulse if someone denies it. Check for a pulse if someone denies it. So, what is the remedy? What is the, the remedy for the, the fear of man, the fear of people that the scriptures refer to? The remedy isn't included in this passage that we read, but we will see how there is a, a relevance to what is here. I'm going to propose that the scriptures propose that the, the remedy for the fear of man is a proper and greater fear. It's somewhat um, counterintuitive, but I'm going to propose that the scriptures say that the way that we are to fight the fear of man is with another fear. We must fight fear with fear. And understand that by remedy, I don't mean a once applied cure, but a lifelong treatment. Because when it comes to the fear of man in this life, you and I will always be in the process of recovery. John the Baptist and Herod are a lesson in contrast. John fearlessly spoke on God's behalf to this government official, knowing it could cost him his freedom and, as was the case, even his life. By worldly standards, John was a nobody, a man without nobility, power, or status. Herod, on the other hand, though a man of prestige, authority, was consumed by fear. What made the difference? Well, simply put, the difference was that John had a proper and greater fear, what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. We will not and cannot overcome the fear of man 
by trying hard to be courageous. I want you to really think about that. We will not and cannot overcome the fear of man by just resolving to be more courageous. We will only become more courageous as we grow in the fear of God and he becomes progressively bigger to us. John Flavel again wrote, it is evident that fear exalts people and belittles God. It thinks upon a person's harmful power so much that it forgets God's saving power. In his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Ed Welch says, the most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. In Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia, C.S. Lewis recounts the encounter between Lucy and Aslan, the Lion King, after a after much awaiting, this reunion between them. And he writes this of the encounter. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, it would be wonderful if just chronological age made God bigger to us. But the point that Lewis was getting at is that as we grow in Christ, our vision of God should expand. And we are captivated by his glory and his majesty, his might, his mercy. And we fear him in a proper way. And I want you to think about something else. We know that God saved us so that we might become like Christ, our Savior. But did you know that Jesus feared God? He walked in the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we have a prophecy of the Messiah that we know is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what Isaiah wrote, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Whatever we mean by the fear of the Lord, it is something good. 
And it is something that Jesus himself, as a perfect man, though yet God, walked in, lived in. And it is what enabled him to live with a security of heart and a courage. In a book called Rejoice and Tremble, Michael Reeves says, Scripture is clear that just as the fear of God defines true love for God, so it defines true joy in God. In the same way that Christ's delight is in the fear of the Lord, so the fear of the Lord is a pleasure to believers, for it is about enjoying his fearfully lovely glory. For those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, Fearing God includes a recognition of his sheer power, his majesty, his holiness and authority, but it's not limited to that. The fear of the Lord, as the Bible presents it, is a response to his befuddling mercy, his compassion, his grace and his kindness to us in Christ. There is no incompatibility or conflict between the facts that God is awful in the truest sense of the word awful and that he is immensely merciful and compassionate. Listen to how the Bible puts those two together so frequently. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, Psalm 130. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, Psalm 103. Teach me your way, the psalmist writes in Psalm 86. O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. And then, lest we think that this is simply an Old Testament phenomenon, Luke describes the early church in Acts 9 as walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Where the fear of the Lord is small, the fear of lesser things will loom large. But where it is growing, it progressively triumphs over lesser fears and gives the believer in Christ a growing security and a courage of heart. I love how the Puritan John Flavel put it. The fear of God will swallow up the fear of man. A reverential awe and dread of God will extinguish the creature's slavish fear as the rain puts out the fire. The fear of the Lord can be learned. It must be learned. And one of the ways that it is learned is by the word of God. When Moses predicted Israel's having a king, he laid out some instructions for how the king was to conduct himself. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, he says this, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him and he shall read it 
all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all his words of this law and these statutes and doing them. The fear of the Lord isn't just a matter of intellectual apprehension or emotional response. It is to be displayed and practiced in our lives. Some of you, this may really, really resonate with. And if you want to explore these themes of scripture more, there are some titles that I would like to leave with you. And they are these. The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Why do you, what do you think of me and why do I care? By Ed Welch. Rejoice and Tremble, the Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. And John Flavel, the Puritan writer from whom I've quoted frequently, a small book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. This is a theme that pervades scripture, but unfortunately, it is one that we often overlook or neglect, and we do so to our own peril. Because as I said, where the fear of the Lord is small or absent, the fear of lesser things will loom large. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we regularly have a greater sense of fear for your image bearers than we do for you, the one whose image we are. We exalt people in our lives. We have decisions governed in terms of what it is that we think will keep us most safe with respect to them. And we make them big and make you small. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the last Adam, delighted in the fear of the Lord and has redeemed us through his blood and his resurrection to renew us such that we might walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of your spirit. And we thank you for your word by which we do learn of your grandeur, your greatness, your majesty. Would you be pleased to allow us to go from here thinking about these things as they relate to us? And Lord, we pray that we might be those who delight in the fear of you as our Savior, that that is what we would desire more than all else. Help us progressively, Father, to put one another in our proper place under you and to walk with confidence and with righteousness because we know that you are with us. Work that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed. Mm -hmm.